1 John chapter 3. Picking up in verse 10, the Apostle writes, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. I love that John has a flair for the obvious. You know, in how he writes and how he teaches, such such simple concepts. Don't you feel like we're living in a culture where the delineation between righteousness and unrighteousness is getting fuzzy? Where, where the difference between what is right and what is wrong, between what is good and bad, light and dark, these things, uh, our, our world, our culture, our society is kind of meshing it all together and saying, ah, that's fine and that's good and it's all good, really. John says, no, no, it's very clearly different between the children of God and the children of the devil and you see in, in the way they live, if you're not practicing righteousness, not a child of God. Because a child of God practices righteousness. He's not perfect, but he's certainly practicing. She certainly is focused on this is what we do if we're really children of God. I mean, isn't it obvious? This is what you do if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. We have spent so much time in the last few decades, especially making it easy and trying to almost excuse ourselves from living righteously. Acknowledging the sin nature, yes, and understanding that that we're fallen beings, but man, when we get saved by Jesus, when we are washed in the blood, practice righteousness. It's what we do. But there's something else we do, and that is we love our brothers and sisters. That's implied here. He's saying the one who does not love his brother, that is not a child of God. Can't say you're a child of God and not love your brother. So those are the two standards, we called them that Sunday, that John sets out before us. Practicing righteousness and loving a brother. Those are the standards. And those should be radically different between a child of God and a child of the devil. One does, the other one doesn't. That's it. One practices righteousness, the other one does not practice righteousness. One loves the brethren, the other one does not. Interesting that when he says that phrase, love his brother, I expected to be a single word. Now, if you've studied through the scriptures at all, you know that brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. And that's what I figured was the word here. And I went and I looked it up and whoa, lo and behold, it's not the word. He doesn't say the one who does not Philadelphia. What he says is the one who does not agapao adelphos. Two words. What he is literally saying here is the one who does not unconditionally love his brethren. Adelphos is that word in the Greek for for brother. Adelphos means those who are united by parentage. So we can apply Adelphos, though it's translated brother, we can apply it to all of us, who are united by parentage, and it is explicit in how we live our lives that we agapao, our Adelphos. We unconditionally love each other. He launches beyond brotherly love. Now he did that at the beginning of chapter 3 verse 1 when he said, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us in order that we be called children of God. And we are. So as the children of God, we are now brothers and sisters. You know this. And John's describing this unconditional love for a brother or a sister. 
And while, of course, the children of God, and get this, it's important, while we are, of course, supposed to show compassion and grace and and kindness and caring in this world, the unconditional love that he is talking about in this section is for the brethren. So this is a targeted unconditional love. He's not just saying, love everybody. He's saying, love the brethren who are under the parentage of God. Who we share a common family with. By the way, John was there. When he heard Jesus twice, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Agapotha. Do you agape me? Do you unconditionally love me more than these? John chapter 21. And of course, John heard Peter on the beach of the Galilee reply, Lord, you know I really like you. Love you, bro. (laughs) Peter replies with Philadelphia, but Jesus is asking for agape. John heard that. It's also likely that John read 1 Peter. See, 1 Peter written in the roughly in the mid-60s or so, A.D., John's now writing two or three decades later, it's very likely he'd read 1 Peter, that it had already been copied, begun to be circulated. John reads that, and so he reads in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, Philadelphia, fervently love one another from the heart, agape. So now John is writing, and his choice word for love throughout the letter is agape. He's talking unconditional love, but now John says it's agape love of the brethren, and that proves our righteous deeds to be of God. Because it's both, the righteousness, but the love as well. Righteousness all by itself breeds pride. If you're just pursuing the righteousness, you know, you're doing the the church at Ephesus thing. You're solid in the doctrine. You're sound in your righteous behavior. You're doing what's right, and you hate what is evil. Hey, that's all well and good, but if that's it and there's no love involved, you're going to be prideful. If it's all love, righteousness, or love without righteousness, then where's the clarity? Where, where's the truth? And you can tend to go off the rails on that one too. It's both. Just as Jesus is grace and truth, So John here declares righteousness and love of the brethren. Both together. Now, to give clarity, in case anybody misses it on this unconditional brotherly love, John turns back to the earliest story of two brothers in the Scriptures and in history. And we're going to do that right now. Keep your finger in uh, 1 John and turn back to Genesis chapter 4. And then go back to 1 John. (laughs) <laughs> you want to be in both places. Genesis 4 and still in 1 John 3. I'm going to give you four points tonight as we walk through the rest of this section of the letter, followed by five points. I want to give you a heads up because we'll go through the four points and we're going to take some time to do that. When we get to the five points, it's going to be like going down a slide. Okay, So don't worry if we go through four points and I say, okay, now I've got point one of the next five, and you go, wait a minute, we've already been here two hours. It's okay. It'll only be another half hour or so after that. Okay? So, four points, then followed by five points. And here's point number one, the culture of Cain. The culture of Cain. 
This is 1 John 3.11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother's were righteous. John does not mince words. He does not play around this with this. Some try to rationalize the actions of Cain. I don't even know if you've heard this, but some try to say Cain's murder of Abel, well, it was accidental. Yeah, sure, he was angry, but he didn't really mean to kill him. I mean, come on, let's, let's cut the guy some slack here. Now, others have tried to say, well, Cain belonged to an early, more primitive time where they didn't really understand that if you conk someone over the head, it could kill him. And we do this excusing away of truth. People have done it with Judas. Maybe Judas didn't really have a choice. Oh, Judas had a choice. The Gospels make that absolutely clear. And so did Cain. And by the way, we're not as smart as we think we are. All the way back to the beginning, they were some pretty smart people. They had some pretty serious wisdom. I mean, you live eight or 900 years and tell me if you're not going to learn a few things in those years that perhaps we don't know even in, in our age. Anyway, truth is truth. And John deals with the truth and he says Cain was evil. That's the deal. His deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous. Now the story in Genesis 4 verse 1. The man had relations with his wife Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. (laughs) And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the Lord. By the way, that's the correct Hebrew translation. What she actually said. Now the translators add that with the help of the Lord... But what she really said was, I've gotten a man-child with the Lord. And I think the implication here is that Eve thought something divine had happened. Not because she was surprised at being pregnant, but that God had told her she heard the curse going on. She heard the curse of the enemy, of the devil. She heard God say that, you know, he is going to... He's going to crush your head. You're going to bite him on the heel. He's going to crush your head. Someone's coming along... The seed of woman is coming along that is going to crush you, serpent. And then Eve gets pregnant and she says, I have just had a child with the Lord. And I think it's just my opinion. But I think that Eve thought Cain was going to be the perfect child. You know, he's the one who's going to save the world. He's the answer to the prophecy. So along comes Cain. How would he do? Well, let's read. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel and... Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Nice fruit basket. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Watch this. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, Cain, you are. You are your brother's keeper. He uses the word ra'ah in the Hebrew for keeper there. 
back in verse 2, it is interesting to note that Abel was a keeper of flocks. That's a different word in the Hebrew. It's shamar. But the two words are synonymous in the Hebrew language. And so Abel is this keeper of flocks. And what is it that Cain says? Am I my brother's keeper? What, am I supposed to shepherd my brother? Keep an eye on him? Keep watch over him? Yeah, yeah. Love is a shepherding responsibility. And from the very first murder of the very first brother by a brother, the responsibility of shepherding was for Cain as much as it was for Abel, as much as it was for the family, as much as it is for us today. The shepherding responsibility in a fellowship does not fall solely on the backs of the leadership. It's all of our responsibility. If the Lord were to say to you, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? If you were to ask that, the Lord would say, yes, you are. That's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. To keep, to guard, to watch, to shepherd, to walk with, to care for, to unconditionally love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But back in 1 John, if you want to know why Cain hated Abel with such murderous rage... What the Spirit does in John the Apostle is he pulls back the layers of the heart, the pericardium, you know, and then the musculature, that myocardium, he pulls it back. And we see how hard Cain's heart really was. We peer inside and we see how dark it was. As John writes at the end of verse 12, his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. There's the contrast between the children of God, verse 10, and the children of the devil. Cain had gone over to be a follower of that which was evil and wicked and wrong. And the source of his hatred, get this, was Abel's righteousness. That's interesting because it still works that way today. If you look at verse 13, John says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. The Christians, why should the world hate us? Why should the world hate me? Because evil hates righteousness. Because if you walk like Jesus and talk like Jesus and do as Jesus did, the dark hates that. And even someone who's not aware of their uh, full rebellion, someone who's not walking with Jesus but walking in darkness, it it makes them uncomfortable. They don't like it. There's a hatred that springs up. That's, That's the culture of Cain. You give your best to God. You... You love Him, you you worship Him, you put Him first in your life, and you become a threat to all those who don't. Evil hates anything that exposes it. And there's nothing like righteousness to expose evil for what it is. It's like shining a big flashlight into a dark room. The greatest threat to evil in the world is righteousness. Because it uncovers what the evil is intending. Verse 14 He says, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. But watch this. He who does not love abides in death. That's the culture of Cain. The culture of Cain is a culture of death. Verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The culture of Cain is the culture of death. And it is one of the primary reasons for corruption in American society today. It is fleeing what was once a culture of life and going into a culture of death. When we see human life as expendable, 
whether it's from the unborn child to the, the aging adult, when we view human life as expendable, we diminish humanity. This is a snowball effect. The snowball effect is as we diminish humanity because human life is expendable, we devalue our existence. And then we begin to do things like oh, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. You see, as humanity is di- di- diminished, the animal kingdom rises up. And we see this happening right now in our world, in our culture, where animals are seen on a par with or above human beings in terms of how we should care for them and treat them and, and, and you know all of that. Well, that's because we've devalued human life. And I say we, I'm talking on a cultural level here. We downgrade then to more base passions. We become, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, we become depraved. And it all begins when the culture of life is exchanged for a culture of death. And that was in the heart of Cain 6,000 years ago. It's in the heart of humanity today. We see this culture of death. This abiding in death, which is what John describes there about the, the heart of a murderer that does not have eternal life abiding in him. And that's the attitude of life, that, that heart of life, that desire to see life, human life, eternal life, protected. He says in verse 16, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. What does that do? That elevated humanity. Nothing in all history elevated humanity like the death of Jesus. Because the eternal price was paid. In that moment, wow, the value God placed on you and on me. Parents, tell your kids this when they're wondering if they're worth anything. The highest price was paid for you, paid for me in that moment. And we were elevated by the death of Jesus. Rather than than developing a culture of death, He sprang out a culture of life by dying Himself and then, of course, resurrecting. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And I get the feeling that John was just hanging on every word Jesus spoke. You'll note this, and, and I would encourage you if you want to go back and reread 1 John and look for all the places where John quotes Jesus. Either in idea or in exact wording. Because Jesus said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Well, that's what John just said. And we ought to now be like Jesus, laying down our lives for others because they are that valuable to us. Love is proof of life. And the willingness to sacrifice self, man, where eternal life abides, when the eternal life of someone else is more important than the physical life that I live right now, that's, that's love. And that's the culture of life rather than the culture of death or the culture of Cain. That unmistakable, unconditional love of the brethren reveals the life that is living within. See, if you have life in you because you know Jesus, then love is what's going to come out. And this is, secondly, the second thing to note, this is the commandment of Christ. Culture of Cain, 
Now we come to the commandment of Christ. John 15 verse 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. What did he command us? To love one another as he loved us. That is the summation of all the commandments. I remember thinking when I was younger that Jesus said, you're my friends if, I, if you do what I command you, and thinking, well, that's a little overbearing. How would that go over in our relationships? If you went up to someone and said, hey, I'd love to be a friend of yours, but I need you to do everything I tell you to do. <laughs> but in essence, that's not what Jesus was saying. You're my friends if you do what I command you. What did he commanded? That you love one another as I have loved you. See, that's how we walk in friendship with Jesus. We love like He loved. The commandment of Christ. How far does that commandment go? Jesus took it all the way to Golgotha and the cross. And John goes a little easier on us. He says in verse 17, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? How can you say you love God when you've got the opportunity to care for, to look after, to to help someone, and, and you don't? It's interesting in verse 17, he says, whoever has the world's goods, two words that we have looked at, in fact, just looked at on Sunday, are used back to back here, cosmos, bios. The world's goods. World is cosmos. Remember what we talked about, it's it's the world in rebellion to God that that he's referring to when he says cosmos. He's not talking about the universe in the context of this letter. The world's goods, goods here is bios, biology. We use it for life, but, but the word in the Greek means resources. Goods, what you have available to you, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 16... Remember he said all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of bios, life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Bios is the world's stuff. And what John's saying is if you have the love of Christ in you, and you have some of the world's stuff, and let's face it, we all do, if someone else needs it, don't hoard it. If someone needs it, give it to them. Because love recognizes a far greater value. Verse 18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. That is genuinely and authentically. And in actuality, like I've told you, this is an incredibly practical letter. And he said, don't talk about love. Do it. Live it. Live the love. That's what Paul meant when he wrote Romans 12, 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Love with hypocrisy is saying I love all people and doing nothing about it. It's sitting around and theorizing love or theologizing love or discussing the different Greek words for love as opposed to doing it. It's the doing of the thing that makes all the difference in deed and in truth, which means with action and in actuality. Live the love. James 2.15 tells us if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled. (laughs) And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, the cosmos, bios, the worldly goods that you have. You don't give it to them. What use is that? It's nothing but empty words and wagging tongues. No, John would say, live the love. Verse 19. 
we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and He knows all things. What? What are you talking about here, John? Some have actually taken this to mean that our good works prove our salvation or even purchase our salvation. See, he's talking about works-based righteousness here. It's by the doing of the thing that you assure your heart so that you won't be condemned. But that's not what John's saying. It's not even close. In fact, if you think that your good works assure your salvation, you are on shaky ground. Because it's grace. It's grace that saves us. This is number three in your notes, the conviction of compassion. The conviction of compassion. There's a background passage that satisfies this, that explains the confusion of what what John's writing. Let me read this one more time. We'll go to the passage. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and we will assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15. I was just talking with Glenn before we walked in here, and a reminder of the value and the importance of context in understanding things. While you're turning there, I've got to share this with you. We had a, a fascinating conversation earlier this morning in our staff meeting about the fact that in both the Hebrew and the Greek language, there is no punctuation. Now, punctuation makes a big difference in how we understand each other, right? Someone asked the question, why is there no punctuation in the Greek and the Hebrew, which is the stuff of which, from which the Bible is written? Why no punctuation? And to my thinking... It's because God doesn't want us to pull out one verse and live on that. He wants us to take the whole thing. He would much rather we be in a conversation. And if you were in a conversation with somebody and they gave you one verse worth of a topic and you walk away, you might or might not understand what they say. It's like texting. How often do we misunderstand each other when we shoot off a one-sentence text? But if you have a conversation with someone, while you might not remember every single word or sentence that was said, when you walk away, you have understanding. And that's what we get with the Scriptures. And that's why reading an entire passage and section is more important than just one verse. Because as we read through, then we we get context. We have understanding. And by the way, we have relationship. That's what God's going for. But Deuteronomy 15, if you look at verse 7... He says, if there is a poor man with you and one of your brothers in any of your towns, in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. You shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Wow, that sounds an awful lot like what John's describing. Brotherly love. Meet the need. If you have the world's goods, give it to them if they need it. Beware that there is no, listen, watch this, beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying, well, the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and Uriah is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because of this, for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you and all your work and all your undertakings, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. 
Therefore I command you saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and poor in your land. Interesting. Be careful there's not a base thought in your heart, he says. A base thought in your heart that basically gives you an excuse for not caring for or meeting the need of a brother or a sister. Now back in John. Interesting also, Moses said the poor will always be in your land. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 7, or actually it was in Mark. He said, the poor you will always have with you. So that's a running theme with the Lord. Care for the poor. Actually, he does say John 14, 7. You always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me, Jesus said. They're always going to be there. But, but here's the idea. Here's the idea. Back in the verses, let me read them again. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. The word assure is persuade. Probably a better translation. We'll persuade our heart before Him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and He knows all things. Here's the idea. Our hearts need persuading. Our hearts need persuading because we can easily condemn an act of love. That is, we can, we can say, well, the year of Jubilee is near, and if I give to him now, he's just going to have to give it all back anyway in the year of Jubilee, so I'm not going to mess with that. Or, if I give it to this brother or this sister, I happen to know how they run their finances, and they're just going to be back in two days asking for more. So, I better not do it this time. Or, well, we just gave to Compassion last year. And we can convince ourselves not to share the worldly goods that we have, And so, condemn even the thought of doing something righteous. Edwin Hoskins, I think, describes this really well. I'm sure you would agree with me. Sir Edwin Hoskins from 1928, a Bible scholar, he wrote the following of this passage. A base thought arises in the heart of a Christian which condemns the sacrifice as unnecessary and suggests that it can be avoided. And that love can be maintained apart from the definite surrender of life or goods. This impulse must be eradicated. The demand of God is greater than the base and ignorant impulse of the human heart. His knowledge is infinite and no motion of the heart escapes his notice. And this is the conviction of compassion. That we, we become convicted to act, but then rather than dismiss it away... Condemn the act as unnecessary. No, we're going to act on it. Remember, the heart is deceptive and, and, and it's sick. It's more sick than all else. So we're not going to trust the heart. And the heart that says, hey, you really don't have to act on love. You can say you love, you don't always have to do it. No, you really need to do it. Or it's not really love. The conviction of compassion. And Paul puts it this way. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. 2 Corinthians 5.14 Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Proof of love right there, right? And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so verse 21 he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. That is, if you act on the love impulse, it's just going to encourage your confidence. It's going to build up your faith even more. And he says, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. We ask with confidence and we receive from the Lord 
Because our hearts are aligned with the Father. And God is love. John's going to say that twice in the passage before us. God is love. God is love. Because God is love. If we're aligned with our Father, then we're going to act in love. And when we come to the Father and we say, Hey, Lord, we have a request, it's going to be granted. Why? Because I'm aligned with the Father. Because I'm doing what the Father wants me to do. So He's going to grant the request. Jesus said this three different times. And it's interesting to note that when Jesus said this all three times was on the night of His betrayal. Boy, you you want to talk about others-centered living. Look at Jesus. About to die for us. And He's still working with the apostles. Still training up. Still speaking words that would be affecting us 2,000 years later. He kept His wit about Him. He says in John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in My name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He said in John 15, 7, If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He says in John 16, 24, Until now you have asked for nothing in My name, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Man, align yourself with the Father who is the God of love, Act in love and bring your request before God and they're going to be granted to you because you're acting in His will. You're acting by His nature, His character. And this conviction that we have, it builds confidence into our walk with Jesus. So the bottom line is this. Don't avoid the impulse to act in love. Don't discount it. Don't don't question it away. Act on it, whether it's with goods or in benevolence or financial assistance or aid to someone in need, especially a brother or a sister. Act in love. Live the love. The love of Christ compels us and controls us. Why are we here? Why are we here? What are we doing? We're here for Bible study tonight, Rick. I understand that. Why are we here in this life? What are you living for? Is it to get up and go to work and Get through the day and come home and have your meal and watch some TV and go to bed. Is that really why why we're here? He wants us to love. To love each other. To love in this world. Not to live by the culture of Cain, but by the commandment of Christ. With the conviction of compassion. And wonderfully, number four, in the company of Christ. Verse 23. This is His commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. And we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. And this is a favorite word of John's, that word, meno, abide. Abide. Meaning to dwell or to remain To stay with, man, kick off your shoes and stay a while. Leave your jacket by the door and settle in. Along with the command to love, the abiding is one of the promise invitations of Jesus again on that night of His betrayal. When He said in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, you know Him because He abides with you. And He will be in you. I still haven't figured out how that works. He's he's in me. He's here. I know He is. I'm assured of this. 
But spiritually, that's, that's so mind-boggling to me. John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, we, Father and Son, will come to him and make our abode with him. How is that possible? By the Spirit. Because as we keep talking about, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God. So he says, I'm going to come. I'm going to dwell there. I'm going to abide. So, so yeah, take off your coat and stay. Relax. Put up your feet. God the Father and God the Son abide in you. And because of that, they do so so that you, so that I will abide in His love. Now you might ask the question, okay, but how do we really know that Jesus abides in us? Have you wondered that? Have you ever thought about that? That whole idea, yeah, He abides. Sounds cool. What does it mean? And how am I certain that that Jesus does abide in me? And John tells us very clearly, by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now listen. This is not some esoteric double talk. We know that Jesus abides in us by the Spirit He has given us. Well, that's great, John. He's shooting straight as John always does. He is speaking here from his own experience of the abiding of Christ. See, John walked with Christ. He knew Jesus. You know that. He was in the three, three and a half year ministry of Christ. He saw him resurrected. He saw him, I believe, in the Revelation even before he wrote this letter. But John writes as one who also knew the Spirit of Christ was abiding within him. He knew what that meant. He wrote of what he knew for himself. And Paul did too. Paul wrote, and we've referenced this many times, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Romans 8, 16, and the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. How do you know you're a child of God? The Spirit tells you. I'm not sure if the Spirit's told me. How, do I, how can I be sure? Keep this in mind, because John's going to say something else about it in just a second. John now continues into what I would call an essential aspect of living the love. If you want to live the love, this is vital. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know this, there are angelic and demonic spirits, right? And many have gone out into the world, and many are in the world, who Paul refers to, Ephesians 6.12, as the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies, this spiritual realm that is reality and is all around us. But those aren't the spirits John's talking about. He's talking about here human spirits. And what John is saying now, because he's dealing with false teaching, he's dealing with heretics as he writes this letter, he says, listen, do not believe every spirit, but test them. Oftentimes we take verses like this and we say, yeah, test the spirits. We get all spiritual. Thinking, yeah, we've got to test the spirits. We need spiritual discernment. And we start to get into the spiritual gifts. And that's all well and good. But don't miss how practical this is. John is saying, you test the spirit of that person who walks in the door of your church. You test the spirit of, of that pastor who is sitting up there teaching. You test 
the spirits of other people. That's what he's referring to. Human spirits test their intentions. Examine their motives as they come and as they go. The word test there in verse 1 is dokumazo, and it means to examine or literally scrutinize. This is something our world, our culture does not like. How dare you, how dare you scrutinize me? How dare you discriminate? See, that's the word. The D word in our culture. Discrimination. We cannot discriminate. We're discriminating all the time. I'm discriminating when I bite into an avocado and it's hard and I don't want to eat it anymore. That's discrimination. I have just discriminated between a bad avocado or one that's not yet ripe and what I enjoy. We are discriminating in our tastes with foods and and, and, you know, restaurants, you discriminate. I won't go there. Well, why not? Discrimination. We do it all the time. And we are beginning, we're being given license here, and stay with me on this, to discriminate other people. In terms of testing and examining, look at verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit, again, talking specifically here, human spirits, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Listen, Jesus is the litmus test of Koinonia Fellowship, of those you would call brothers and sisters, uh, of the children of God. The children of God confess Jesus Christ as having come in the flesh. And if they don't, or if they reject that, or they try to, to spin Jesus a different way, a different kind of Jesus, another Jesus, that's Antichrist, as we've talked about. And you are to examine the spirits. Yes, to discriminate. I don't mean that in the negative way, the connotation that is taken in our society, but love doesn't require us to blindly tolerate or heedlessly accept anyone in the world with this unconditional brotherly love. We are to be discriminating in our thinking. So, what are you saying, Rick, that we just cut off non-believers? No. No, we want to love them into the family. But we are discerning and discriminating with those who have not accepted the deity of Jesus Christ. That's the litmus test right there. You ask Rick, what do you think about this church or that church or that church over there? The first question I ask is, do they accept the Lordship of Jesus? That's A number one. Their theology might be wonky. Their Bible teaching might even be a little off in different areas. But if Jesus is magnified, Joel Olstein is a good example. I was telling someone this just today. I am not big on Joel Olstein. That's just my opinion. I think he's Bible light. I think it's, you know, Oscar Milk Toast preaching. It's very happy. Lots of smiling. And I don't believe that we have our best life now. I believe our best life is to come. However, Joel Olstein offers the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as Lord at every single service. You may not have known that. To me, that elevates him as a brother. I don't agree with a lot of his teaching, and I think it is very light and, you know, snack food. But if Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. So there's discriminating discriminating thinking going into this. 
Again, we are to love all people. We are to be kind. We are to be compassionate and considerate to all. But we are discriminating as well because the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. As John has clearly stated, spirit of Antichrist who will be a person at one point but now is moving in the world and those who do not have the spirit of Jesus dwelling within, they can be swayed by the spirit of Antichrist. And there are those who function in the spirit of Antichrist, bringing false teaching and heresy, so be discriminating. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 1.8. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. How? How should our love abound? Listen, he says, in real knowledge and all discernment. That's love. That's God's love. It's both grace and truth. It's love and it's righteousness. It is discerning. Paul says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Verse 4. He says, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you, that is the Spirit of Christ, than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, and verse 6 is a bold statement for John to make. We are from God. Listen to us. And if you don't listen to us, there's a problem. And he even discriminates here, saying, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The Roman Catholic Church has taken verse 6 and laid claim to it, saying the us is the Roman Church. So you've got to listen to us and we will tell you what to do. Not so. The us in this verse is John's declaration of apostolic authority. John, the last living apostle, the us, is referring to himself and the teaching of the apostles. Voice uh, said, commentator said, if this were a mere individual talking, the claim would be presumptuous. (laughs) But it is not. This is one of the apostles of Jesus Christ citing the collective testimony of all the apostles and making that testimony the measure of truth and sound doctrine for the church. And that's what John has just done. Pay attention to us. Listen to us. That's the pattern. And that pattern was set all the way back at the beginning of the church. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Yeah, but... I mean, I'll I'll give you that. that The apostles' teaching, but, but what about deception? Hey, where the Spirit is false, the teaching is false. Note that he says this. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. With the false teacher comes a spirit of error, which means they're not going to get it right. Which means that as children of God, you need to know what the truth is. We need to be in the Word and discerning by the Word and testing everything against the Word so that if false teaching comes, we can go, ah, ah, whoa, whoa. There is error in what you're saying. And what John is saying is there is a spirit of error and there is a spirit of truth and they do not coexist in the body. 
someone's bringing error and bringing heresy, they're not. If it's truth mixed with, that is dangerous. That's what that's what the devil does. That is the spirit of Antichrist. Mixing in a little bit of error with some truth. Ah, but what he said the other day was so good. Yeah, but what he's saying right now is absolutely wrong. So the litmus test of that is you don't listen to him, period. Because you don't bring error and truth together. You with me? All right. I want to say something here about the Holy Spirit. And explain something that I think is is sometimes uh, a challenge for us in, in the church and in following Jesus. Experiencing the Holy Spirit is... Well, it seems easier for some, doesn't it? Even in our fellowship, couldn't you? If I gave you a piece of paper and a pencil, couldn't you name five people who are walking with the Spirit every day and you just know. You just see it in them. You see Him moving. You see how they relate and respond. You just go, yeah, and and her and Him and them, you know. And not me. (laughs) So there are people who are like that. They They just seem more sensitive to the things of the Spirit and listening more in touch with the Holy Spirit and perhaps spiritual things. Some in the church, and I'm not necessarily saying the bridge, but I'm talking about the church in general, some can be overly emotional when it comes to the Spirit, mistaking the work of the Holy Spirit for physical excitation. You know, you know, wrapped up in things, the Spirit was there, and you're going, no, you just had too much coffee. Really, it's the problem. <laughs> and then there are some who look on the Holy Spirit and His work and those who are in the more spiritual category with some degree of doubt or incredulity, saying, well, I'm just more comfortable if we stick to the Word. (laughs) Because that Holy Spirit stuff, that starts to freak me out. We have all of that in the church. Which, by the way, I think is marvelous. Our more spiritually sensitive brothers and sisters, and our more just word-focused brothers and sisters, and we need each other. I'll tell you what, he's not here tonight, so I'll just tell you, Les Dams is one of the best things that ever happened to me. And I love having him alongside me in ministry, and working together, you know. And as I've shared with you many times before, the two of us together make, I think, one really good pastor. (laughs) But here's the thing. Talking about the Holy Spirit, understand this. John, he does something here, and and it's very telling. This is the first time. Verse 24 is the first time in the letter he's mentioned the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you caught that. We haven't seen any mention of the Spirit until now. Suddenly in verse 24, he mentions... The Spirit. And then every mention of the Spirit after that, and there are several more and I'll show you, every mention of the Spirit after that tells us what the Spirit does. Reveals to us the work of the Holy Spirit. And this goes back to that question, how do I know? How do I know that Jesus is in me? How do I know the Spirit's in me? Okay, so pay attention to this. Verse 24 of chapter 3, go back. He says in the latter half of the verse, We know by this that He, that is Jesus, abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now, if that was a standalone verse, we might say, Well, that doesn't tell me any more than if I... How do I know Jesus abides in us? Well, then how do I know that the Spirit abides in us? You know, John says we know Jesus because His Spirit. Help me out here, John. Well, He does. Verse 2 of chapter 4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What does the Holy Spirit do? He tells you 
that Jesus came in the flesh. Right? You with me? Continue on. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. We are from God, John writes. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the spirit is the spirit of truth. The spirit's not going to lie to you. The spirit's not going to deceive you. He is the spirit of truth. And by the way, spirit of truth there probably ought to be capitalized. I think we're talking about the Holy Spirit. That is a name given throughout the New Testament for the Holy Spirit, spirit of truth. Look at verse 13 of chapter chapter 4. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. Here we go. Because He has given us of His Spirit. Okay, so he's get, this is how we know He's in us. He's given us a Spirit. So John is repeating what he said back in verse 24 of chapter 3. Continue down to chapter 5, verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. And it is the Spirit who does what? Testifies. Put Him up on the stand, gang. Get Him up there before the judge. Put Him before the jury. This is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. The water and the blood speak of Jesus. And the Spirit is in agreement with the water and the blood. I'm going to explain that more on Sunday. But understand this. The Spirit testifies. A right Spirit, whether human or heavenly, a right Spirit always magnifies Jesus Christ. Always testifies of Jesus Christ. How do I know the Holy Spirit is in me? Do you testify of Jesus? Do you know you couldn't do that if the Spirit wasn't in you? You believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, that, that He came, that He dwelt among us? That's the litmus test. It's not tongues or miracles or other signs that I don't have a problem with. It's Jesus who proves to us that the Spirit is in us. Because it is the Spirit of God in you that is confirming your faith in Jesus Christ as having come in the flesh. It's what He does. He testifies of Jesus. Remember at the end of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 10, John bows down before an angel and the angel picks him up real quickly and says, don't do that! I can imagine the angel looking over his shoulder hoping that nobody saw it happen. (laughs) Don't, Don't worship me. Worship God, he says. And then he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about Jesus Christ, the magnification of Jesus. How do I know Christ abides in me? By His Spirit. How do I identify that His Spirit is telling me, man, do you identify Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us? Do you believe in Him as both God and Savior? If so, you could not, unless the Spirit was confirming this, was testifying of this within you. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying whether you're super sensitive to the Spirit or super not, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, there's your confirmation that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Because it is the Holy Spirit testifying of Jesus. And you have faith in Jesus by that testimony. You may not hear Him necessarily, but He's there confirming your faith. 
Which is why I've said in the past, anywhere, any church that exalts Jesus Christ as King, as Savior, as God, that church, the Holy Spirit's there. Any church that denies Jesus, ignores Jesus, doesn't talk about Jesus, places that elevate the work of the Spirit and never mention Jesus Christ, that is suspect. Because the Spirit testifies of Jesus. It's what He does. Now, five points. We just did the four. Five. Buckle up. Don't blink. You'll miss them. Number one, as we finish this out in chapter four, back to God's love in me. God's love in me. Remember, the Spirit's in me. The Spirit is confirming my faith in Jesus. The Spirit confirms that Father and Son are abiding in me. And God's love in me is, number one, character. It's character. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Period. God is the definition of love. That's the deal. Remember years ago, our friend brother Johan from China said, love is not God. God is love, but love is not God. And that is an important distinction because in our culture we've made love God. Or some variation, really, of love. Not true love. But people say love is more important. No, God is love. You know what love looks like? God. Love defined? Look at God. Want to understand how to love? That's Jesus Christ. Because God is love. Love doesn't define God for us. God defines love for us. Does that make sense? That's huge. That means I want to understand what real love, what eternal love, what agape is. I look at God and I say, that's the measure. That's what it looks like. God who flooded the world. That's love? Yeah. Because the flood saved generations of people who believed in God before the flood from never being able to be saved. Because in the flood, God saved eight people and maintained a lineage so ultimately Christ could come and be the sacrifice that would save all those people before the flood, the countless thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions before the flood, who died with some measure of faith, who could now be saved, but if the world had gone 100% evil, they all would have been lost. That's love. God defines love. You look at what God does and say, well, why would He do that? Well, understand that God is love. So when you understand what He's done, you get a fuller picture of what love is. Love is character, and God's love is in me. So God who is love abides in me. Verse 9 tells us by this, the love of God was manifested not just to us, but in us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Note this, it's really cool. We are begotten of God. Jesus is begotten of God. What's the difference? Well, He says, back in verse 7, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The word born of is ganao. Begotten is the literal translation. If you love, you're begotten of God. Oh, that makes me Christ-like. Yes, it does. But not exactly. Because the word for only begotten is not ganao, it's monogenes. And it is a word in the Greek that is only applied to Jesus. Only to Jesus. We're ganao, we're begotten. He's monogenes, only begotten. Now in English we might say, 
well, if we're begotten, how can He be only begotten? He's unique. He's the only one like Him. He's the only one who was God and put on flesh, and then in the resurrection became begotten, the monogenes, the only begotten of God, that's Jesus, and then the rest of us, because He's monogenes, we can be ganao. So your Greek is getting really good. <laughs> Ganao is us. Monogenes is Jesus. We are begotten because of His begottenness. And what all that means is that we, we get to share in now the character quality of the love of God. If God is in me and God is love, guess what that does to me? It starts to make me love. It starts to affect the way I behave and the choices I make and the actions that I do. But if we don't listen, if we don't love like Him, can we really claim that we're begotten at all? We must love like God if God who is love is in us. So God's love in me is character. His character begins to transform my character. Secondly, God's love in me is characterized. Characterized. Verse 10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Jesus paid, that's propitiation. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us, characterized, if you will, in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. You want to know another way that you know the Holy Spirit dwells in you? That Father and Son abide in you? You're more loving than you would be otherwise. You even have, you even have the little argument in your head. Should I do this? I don't want to do this, but I think I should. Okay, I'll do it. I don't really feel like being loving, but I'm going to be loving. Why would you even think that? Because Father and Son are in there, and because the Spirit is working in you, and the characterization of His love is beginning to be manifested in you, in me. We're walking this out. God's love in me is characterized. And, number three, God's love in me, as with the Holy Spirit, is confessed. God's love in me is confessed. Verse 14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. What did He say? We have seen and testified. How did John begin the whole letter? What was from the beginning? What we have heard? What we have seen with our eyes? What we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life? The life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. That's what happens when the Spirit of God indwells you. You testify. You confess the love. God's love is in me, therefore the confession comes out of me. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. If you have no trouble confessing Jesus, you got his spirit. He is abiding in you. We have come to know, verse 16, and have believed the love which which God has for us. And again, he says, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And John is just underscoring this whole thing. Our abiding love is confessed. 
We don't go around silent. If the love of God is in us, if the Spirit of God indwells us, we testify. We can't help it. We share. No, it's like Shakespeare. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. What rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often in his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, he speaks of his beloved, nor lose possession of thou of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee, that great sonnet of Shakespeare, where he professes his undying love, comparing his beloved to a summer's day that doesn't even compare because it's too short. Love confesses. Love can't help it. When you fall in love, you tell everybody. And when the love of God is in you, same thing. You tell love, you, you tell everybody. And my friends, love that's not confessed is not love. So if you're not confessing Jesus, then you gotta wonder, is Jesus in me? God's love is in me, God's love is confessed. Number four, God's love in me is confidence. Confidence. Verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. That doesn't mean if you go to see a horror movie, and I would recommend against it, but that doesn't mean if you get scared in a horror movie that you don't have the love of God. Well, perfect love casts out fear, and I'm scared to death right now. Listen. As, okay. The he here is Jesus. Verse 17. Okay, by love, by this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. That's Jesus. As he is, so also are we. We function as his representatives. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. As he is, so are we in this world. Ambassadors of Christ, representatives of Jesus. Paul says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's us in this world. And we have confidence in this world to speak in the name of Jesus and on behalf of Jesus, because that's what we are, His ambassadors. But again in verse 18, there's no fear in love. Now someone can say, hang on a second, and here's a problem. If there's no fear in love, then how can Paul say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? In Philippians chapter one or chapter four, verse twelve, it's two different fears, two completely different fears. What what Paul is talking about? He's talking about fear of God, which is a holy and awesome fear. And by the way, that fear will remain throughout all eternity. The true truth is, the more you know Jesus, the more you fear Him. 
the more you understand God, the greater your awe, the more just stunned you are by Him. When we see Him on that day, we will be more filled with the fear of God than we have ever known in our lives. And it won't put us off, and we won't be shaking or running scared. We will be in awe. Awesome. Mind and spirit blowing fear. And that's a good fear. That guides our faith. I've told you before, much better the fear of God than the fear of man. Because the fear of God is holy and righteous and makes us desire to be like Him and to follow after Him and obey Him and, and do everything that He wants us to do. That's, that's, one, that's, that's what Paul's talking about. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Man, stay in the fear of God. But perfect love casts out fear of punishment. And that's what John's talking about here. We don't fear that we're going to go to hell. That, that, that's it. I, I am an ambassador of Christ in this world. I can speak for Christ in this world. And I have absolutely no worry, no fear, no trepidation that I might not do enough. Might not be good enough. Might not work hard enough to be saved. I could go to hell, so i got to work a little harder. No. There's no fear when you know the love of God. Because the love of God tells you unequivocally... Son, daughter, you're saved. I paid for that. You are saved. You're coming home when the time calls for it. But the fear of God, again, is different. As Paul says in Philippians 4.13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So God's love in me brings confidence. Confidence of my salvation. Confidence of eternity with Jesus. Last one, number five. God's love in me is commanded. Verse 19. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And again, I love the fact that John is so black and white. So absolutely clear. He doesn't mince words. He says, look, this is just the truth. He doesn't soften it for us. And in verse 21 he says, and this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love agape, his adelphos, his brother also. That unconditional brotherly love that we began with. God's love in me is commanded. One of the more challenging things I have ever heard I will leave you with tonight. We only love God. We only love Him as much as the one we love the least. You want to measure your love for God? Measure it by your love for others.